Okay, so um, welcome to the uh, Asia Summer. I'm Stephen Wilkinson, co-director of the Summer. It gives me very great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Sunil Kumar from the uh, University of Delhi. Um, when I was a history graduate student, I shared an office with a fellow history graduate student, Sunil, about 20 years ago uh, at Duke. So it's a, it's a great pleasure here to welcome him to uh, Chicago, where he was a graduate student in an earlier uh, incarnation. Um, he's going to talk today on kingship, courts, and capitals, Sultanate Delhi in the 13th and 14th century. He has this major book uh, on the emergence of the Delhi Sultanate that's just come out uh, from Permanent Black right, in uh, Delhi last year. And he's also known here for the present in Delhi's past, which I understand is uh, taught in at least one course that Mark Lysak teaches uh, here at the university. So, Sunil, welcome. Thank you. Um, the paper today is, uh, I'm just going to stand up, I need to stay awake. And, um, the paper that I'm giving today is part of a forthcoming work, and partly because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large work and still incoherent in its details, my talk is going to be just a wee bit scattered. But I'm trying to organize it around the idea that remains of Delhi at a later age where Delhi was referred to as hazrat delhi or the sacred city of Delhi. And this is, of course, a reference to the, to the city, uh, which, which we find from the 16th century onwards, 16th century, century onwards, memory of Delhi is always hazrat delhi And it's curious that that term is used for it, because by that time, Delhi is no longer the capital of an, uh, an emerging empire of the Mughals. Uh, I, I study the Sultanate and I realize, of course, that I'm a very rare commodity. There are very few people that study it or know that much about it. So, and what I, what I want to do is when I talk about the idea of the city of Delhi, I want to talk about a variety of different things. Uh, perhaps most important of all is to focus upon the fact that a pre-Mughal Delhi which was a capital of a fairly important political formation, is a relatively uh, understudied area. The, the Delhi that people study and, and focus upon is Mughal Delhi. And in going back to a pre-Mughal Delhi, what I would like to do is actually talk about how there was actually, at one level, no conception of a city of Delhi. This is a problem when we think of Delhi as a monolith because there were several cities of Delhi. And yet, the, there's a resounding sort of picture of Hazrat Delhi, a city of Delhi. How does that happen? What are the kinds of processes that are in place that allow for that kind of a development? But in moving that direction, uh, Stephen, I have about 45 minutes, about yeah. 45 minutes. Uh, in moving that direction, what I would like to do is also sort of work through the many cities of Delhi and talk in terms of why there were so many cities, what does it mean, uh, and how despite the shifting, there remains this one picture. So before we start, uh, what I'd like to do is actually give you a sense of, if you could switch these lights off, perhaps you could see this better. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, what I would like to do is just walk everybody through the territory of Delhi, or the, what I refer to as the plain of Delhi. And there are several important features that you have to keep in mind. Uh, on the one hand, on the western side of Delhi, 
are, is the last spur of the Aravli Hills, what is known in Delhi as the Ridge. So you have the highest terrain in the southern part and it moves on the western rim and there's a, uh, there's a spur in the north part. But if that's one geographical element which is extremely important in the city of Delhi, the other one is of course the Yamuna River. But I've put this map up also to draw everybody's attention to the many streams that come down from this Aravli Spur, what is known as the ridge, the many seasonal streams that come down and meander the way uh, towards Delhi. It's perhaps important to focus upon this because the little that is studied of the Sultanate city of Delhi, cities of Delhi, it, uh, focuses upon the fact that uh, the planners, the people who build these cities, were not terribly astute in citing their towns. So that they would cite their towns and eventually discover that there was not enough water. It took them in this, histori in this historiography, it took the sultans uh, about five years, five centuries to discover the fact that there was a river and that it might be a good idea to actually construct by its side. Now, so in focusing upon the streams, it's actually what I would like to do is to see the correlation of these streams with the cities of Delhi. And that brings it out a little bit better. Uh, and the purpose behind it is really to focus upon how carefully planned the many cities of Delhi were. Uh, I'm just going to go through the cities very quickly here. And it's on the table as well, which I've handed out. So you can see Delhi Kona, which is the first city or the old city of Delhi. That's the first city that we have built by the Delhi Sultans, or the, which was the Sultanate capital. It remained uh, the capital for quite a while. Briefly, we have Kilokri out here, which is not quite on the river, but on a stream that winds up by the river. Uh, subsequently, we have Siri, which emerges as, to begin with, a military cantonment and then a proper city in itself. And then, and then movement towards Tughlaqabad. What is not mentioned here is a small uh, capital which was established just by the side of Tughlaqabad. We'll take a closer look at that later on, which was called Adilabad. It's conjoined with Tughlaqabad. And after Tughlaqabad, the shift towards the north. This is when, apparently, the sultans discovered the water, the river, Firozabad. Uh, and this, by the time we get to Firozabad, as you can notice in the table, we're in the middle of the 14th century. But uh, it's, it's this time period that I would like to focus upon. So if you think about the geography, take a, take, take a look at, for example, Delhi Kona which will make sense only in relation to a reservoir which was established on the plateau of the Aravli Hills here, which is called the Hose Shamsi or Hose Sultani at that time, which was constructed by Iltutmish. And what was interesting about this is that it was constructed so that the overflow of this, of this tank actually fed a stream which created the moat to Delhi Kona. And you can actually notice this, the bed of this stream still there. Uh, and as it, moved, as it moved eastwards and then north, it was the moat to a subsequent city of Jahapana. And of course, you have here Satpul, which was a fairly elaborate sluice gate dam, which was constructed to retain water on both sides of the wall. So there's a huge reservoir in the, in, inside Jahapana and a 
fairly well watered tract which was outside South Pool. There were also reservoirs all over providing ample water for the residents of Delhi. You notice this kind of construction all the way through. You, know, you, you will see that the stream gets to be the moat for the, for the city of Siri. I, I don't want to belabor this point, but it's actually very important to sort of just focus upon the geography and hence the planning. Now, um, if you're talking about planning and if you're talking about the geography of these uh, cities, one of the interesting features is actually brought out in this table itself, that the, the, the Delhi sultans moved the cities around fairly, uh, uh, fairly, uh, fairly frequently. And the question comes up, how, why, is it that they, why, why is it that they moved these cities around as much as they did? And um, in part, I mean, again, the historiography sort of focuses upon the contrast between the Sultanate and the Mughals. And of course, it's, a, uh, it's an important comparison to make because on the one hand, you have rapid changes in political dispensations and dynasties. In contrast, the Mughals that seem to have a fairly stable uh, rule for a century and a half at least. Uh, but, you know, beyond this very general comparisons, it's also perhaps to focus upon the cities for what they can tell us about the dynamics of the political structures themselves that the Sultanate established. And uh, now that comes out very nicely if you were to take, for example, the, exam the case of Ruknuddin Firoz. Uh, he's on your list, 1236. Okay. Now you will notice that the first capital of Delhi hap was happened just in the reign prior to Ruknuddin, in Iltutmish's reign, that is Ruknuddin's father. Iltutmish is the man who pretty much lost Lahore to the Mongols and uh, established Delhi as the capital. And it's in his time period when uh, not just the greatest construction activity occurred in Delhi, but he's also the individual who put in place a variety of political elites that lent coherence, that lent coherence to this emerging sultanate. And there are two bodies of people that we need to focus upon at this time that Iltutmish um, had important relationships with in the emerging sultanate. Uh, the first body of people were his slaves, people referred to as the Shamsi Bandagan, and they were his governors. They were a body of people with whom he had established, with that, the body of people that he had purchased over a long period of time. Some he had purchased even before he became Sultan. And the dyadic relationships that he had with his older slaves actually uh, promoted them in office. And uh, the chronicle of this time period refers to them always as the Bandagane Khas, or the special slaves, or the important slaves of the, of the monarch. And these were, if you follow their career trajectories, you realize that they were always his governors in perhaps the most elite garrisons of the Delhi Sultanate. So they were the Bandagane Khas, uh, uh, a deracinated elite, a deracinated elite, a body of people that Orlando Patterson uh, importantly refers to as socially dead and innately alienated individuals. Uh, they were one body of people. The other body of people that he had relationships were, broadly speaking, the Ehle Kalam. Uh, and when I refer to the Ehle Kalam or the people of the pen, I mean both the jurists, the, the ulema, the literati, and I mean also the secretaries, the administrators, those who manned his administrative appointments, who 
kept the divans, the, the registers of finance. Uh, they were, an, again, a very important body of people, especially post-1220 and the Mongol invasions, when uh, people of training and learning in larger numbers migrated to Delhi. And this coincided with Iltutmish's expansion of the empire. So with the help of these people, uh, with the help of the Ali Kalam, who were removed from their own habitats, who were searching to recreate the sense of a lost ummah. Iltutmish, uh, not unlike many regimes today, floated the idea perhaps of a composite sultanate which could mirror a composite ummah, a composite Muslim community. And part of this uh, condominium of interest was represented by Iltutmish's creation of many uh, monumental structures such as, for example, the Qutub Mosque or what we know today as the Qutub Mosque. In any case, the point that I want to make is that in Il Il by the time Iltutmish died, there were a body of very entrenched elite that resided in, uh, to go back to my map, that resided in Delhi Kona, that resided in Delhi Kona. And his son, Ruknuddin, uh, was an individual who had been a governor for a fairly long period of time. But when he came to Delhi, he found an entrenched elite that he had to actually deal with. One way of his dealing with these people was actually to create a political dispensation of his own. And Juzjani actually refers to them as the Rukni Amirs. There's an, and th this gets to be a title, a, a, a title or an affiliation, a nisbah, that these individuals carry. So we have Orkhan, a Rukni. And the term Rukni would refer to Ruknuddin. While he's creating his own dispensation, he also creates a geographical space to locate them in. And that's when he moves from his father's habitat and for the first time establishes Kilokri. Kilokri is referred to as the Sherino, the new city. This is a new city which comes up very quickly. Now, what is interesting to note is that Ruknuddin was unsuccessful. He was unsuccessful in the long duration to actually break the power of the entrenched elite in Iltutmish's reign. He was captured and brought back. And when he was captured and brought back, the, the new city was pretty much depopulated. So the, this new capital lost its luster. And it, by, the, by the time we move into the latter half of the century, people don't even remember that there had been a city such as Kilokri. Okay, so it just uh, declines in its influence. Uh, now, that's an interesting kind of a moment because if you follow the making of the cities of Delhi, you notice this, this, uh, this correlation between establishing independent dispensations of power and creating geographical spaces in which, in which these dispensations could be harbored. Uh, it's not quite as mechanical as I'm making it sound because there are individuals, and if I can just go through a couple of them, there are individuals, if you go through this list, um, between 1266 and 1287, you have Ghyasuddin Balban. Subsequently, in 1296 and 1360, 1316, we have Alauddin Khalji. Both Balban and Alauddin Khalji went back to the old town to reside there. Okay? Now, what was interesting about them is that in both of them went back to the old town after they had actually captured the town. Balban, through years of machination, years of service in, as, uh, of the Sultan, making the Sultan a titular monarch until, in fact, 
uh, Nasiruddin Mahmud did not have an independent dispensation. So while Nasiruddin Mahmud ruled, it was the Ghiasi dispensation or the dispensation, the political dispensation of Ghiasuddin Balban, which controlled the city. So that by the time he takes over, by the time he takes over power in Delhi Kona, Delhi or Delhi Kona or the old city is already his. Similarly, Alauddin Khalji is interesting because Alauddin Khalji, his father, Alauddin Khalji's father had gone back and repopulated Kilokri. And when, I'm sorry, not father, but uncle, when Alauddin Khalji killed his uncle, he could not go back to his uncle's residence, Kilokri. He moved to Delhi Kona. And the early part of Alauddin Khalji's reign is actually quite interesting because that's the moment that you see a variety of different accommodative gestures that Alauddin Khalji makes with the local elites, with the local elites of the, of the town, and through them gradually, manages to consolidate his authority. When he does consolidate his authority, he starts constructing in the, new, in the old city. So that together with consolidation of power, we have the remaking of the old city. This is when, for example, uh, the Qutub Mosque is rebuilt. This is when he starts off his famous Alai Minar, which remains incomplete at the time of his death. But in other words, together with the constitution of political uh, authority, the construction activity had to occur uh, concurrently. Uh, I want to spend some time on the subject and talk about the city of Tughlaqabad, which is one of the areas that I focus on in my study of, of uh, Delhi. This is an aerial photograph of the city of Tughlaqabad. And from it, you will realize that of all the Sultanate cities, this is perhaps the only city that is still extant, its, its geography can still be figured out on the ground. All the others have just been rebuilt over, over centuries, so uh, they're, less in, they're less invisible. Uh, this is called Tughlaqabad, and the entire area is regarded as the capital of Ghiasuddin Tughlaq, which is probably a mistake. Uh, Ghiasuddin Tughlaq, if you take a look at this table, you realize he ruled for about four years, and the geographical area that is, that is covered, as, uh, that is described as Tughlaqabad, uh, is about one-third the size of Shah Jahanabad. It's a huge area. So that kind of construction activity could never have occurred in that period of time. So what was Ghiasuddin's town? Ghiasuddin's town was the small area marked out here, which is the citadel, and an adjacent area out here, which is the palace area. So it's just this small area, which was the original city of Tughlaqabad. There might have been at that time, the Jawam Masjid as well. But there was no wall enclosing the city, almost definitely. Uh, the wall that, that's enclosing the city came up together with the city which was constructed in the far bottom here, which is the city of Adilabad by, uh, by Ghiasuddin's son, Muhammad Tughlaq. And so, in other words, if you can just go down, you will see the picture slightly more clearly here. This is. Uh, this is the city which, which was constructed by Ghiasuddin. Adilabad is the city made by his son, who is probably the individual who built the wall around the Sheher or the town. And we can guess at this because of the kind of statement that Ibn Battuta made. Mohammedan Tughlaq, in passing, is the individual that survived in the historiography for the longest time as this very capricious sultan who was 
who indulged in a variety of eccentric measures. One of the measures was that he wanted to construct a wall which would link all the cities of Delhi together. Now, this is repeated by many uh, authors, especially Ibn Battuta. And Ibn Battuta, who mentioned this, is probably recalling what was told to him about the construction, construction activity that was taking place around just Tughlaqabad. Okay, so that's probably the context in which that, 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 that memory was inflated into something uh, substantially bigger. But one of the things that you will notice when you take a look at Gyasuddin's uh, uh, that, that aerial photograph of Tughlaqabad is um, the nature of the geography around. One of the reasons why Gyasuddin Tughlaq could build very quickly is that he built on escarped terrain. I mean, this land goes up very quickly. It's one of the spurs of the Aravali Hills, which is lying in that area. What is interesting is, is, of course, that the citadel is located on the highest point in the plain of Delhi. So this point actually towers over the entire region. It's in its, in, in its central location in the citadel. It is actually, its peak is taller than the Qutub Minar. So he's looking for a place from where he can actually make a very grand statement. Uh, he also carefully constructed uh, buns in the hills surrounding, uh, surrounding his city. So we notice buns that are constructed here to retain water as it flowed down into the Jamna. So the city came to be completely, his city came to be completely surrounded by a moat and uh, with a huge lake on its side. So we have this very impressive construction activity that Gyasuddin Tugla carries out. Uh, why is all of this so significant? So let me just give you a kind of a quick narrative about how this construction actually occurred in Gyasuddin's reign. If you follow the chroniclers, if you follow the chroniclers of Gyasuddin, uh, one of the points that is always made is that he was an individual who had actually no standing in Delhi. He was a frontier commander who spent all his time fighting with the Mongols. And he was, that is where he won the title of Ghazi Malik, or the great hero, of, the, the, the great religious warrior in the cause of Islam. Because he saved, like uh, the great Alexander, uh, the civilization from the Gog and Magog, from, from, from the heathen Mongol invaders. Um, he was not just a redoubtable warrior, but he was also an individual who was extremely loyal to his patrons, to the Khalji monarchs. And a part of that, part of that picture comes out from the fact that when the Khalji monarchs were, were removed from power by one of their slaves, of all of the Khalji uh, commanders, he was the one individual that assailed, that, that led a revolt which would, uh, in the, to, to restore them to authority and to restore Islam in authority because the man who used power at that time was always described as not just a menial slave of Hindu origins, but also as an apostate. So Islam was in danger. And of course, Ghazi Malik, the great hero of Islam, should be the one who had at one time protected Islam from foreign invasions, but who would now come back into Delhi and restore Islam in the capital itself. But when he marched to Delhi, when he marched to Delhi, this military commander on the frontier received no support from Delhi, the Delhi nobility. And to put it in space, what we're talking about then is that he received no support from the residents, the military commanders who resided in Siri or in Delhi Kona. Okay, so these were the types of people that, that said, 
that actually fought with Ghazdin Tughlaq as he marched to the capital from Multan. Ghazdin Tughlaq, as he marched to the capital, brought in his wake a body of people that are described by Amir Khusro as uh, the Mongols of Rum and Rus. He brought in his wake a body of people also described as the Ghuls. He brought to get with him to the capital the Khokars and the Gakars. What is interesting about all of these people is that these are always described as those individuals who, or groups that were antagonists to the Delhi Sultanates. And they were actually a body of people that he recruited while serving in the frontier. So he brings, in a sense, a body of foreigners to Delhi and with brings to Delhi the frontier. I've, I've developed some of these points elsewhere. Uh, so I won't get into it now, but what gets me interesting is, A, the fact that we have foreign frontier elements that are coming to the capital, together with the fact that the residents of Delhi are not in support of him. Now he doesn't, again, in the, in the depiction of this man, he doesn't want to become Sultan. He's, he's, a, humble, he's a humble warrior in the, in, in the frontier. He comes, to the, he comes to the capital to restore the, his patrons to power. When no member of that family was found, he was prevailed upon to become Sultan. When he became Sultan and he held court, he put no stock on hierarchy. So that when, 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 the, when the court would meet, he would get off his, his throne and meet everybody as if they were equal with tears streaming down his, his eyes. Now that is a rhetoric that surrounds the early, the early years of Ghiasuddin Tughlaq's rule. Uh, to, 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 again, to summarize developments, while all of these events are taking place, he was constructing this palace as well, and this, the city of Tughlaqabad. And we note that through the very brief period of his reign, by the third regnal year, he has actually removed whatever remnants of the Khalji elite were still around. There was, there was still a body of people in his retinue who revolted when they heard a rumor, and this is, this is interesting, there's a rumor that was afloat that, that his son had been ordered to, uh, to massacre them all. And the rumor was enough to actually force the Khalji elites, the, the remnant Khalji elites to revolt. And that in that rebellion, the last of the Khaljis were killed. At that time, at that time, the news of the defeat of the rebels was sent to Tughlaqabad. So that's the third regnal year. That's the first time that we realize that Ghiasuddin Tughlaq has shifted from his master's capital, which was originally Siri, to Tughlaqabad. Now to understand this move, what you have to do is to take a sense, to get an idea of the city of Tughlaqabad. And this is what it is. It's, it's as I said, scarped terrain. So it's, it's on one hand, it's divided as, as it exists today, in three parts. There's a city, there's a palace, and the citadel. But what you have to also keep in mind is the fact that each part of this territory is at a different level. So it's, it's stepped. You, as you make transitions from one area to another, you're not just passing fortifications, but you're also climbing up. And you, you, you're facing a completely different kind of a phenomena. Uh, this is the wall of Tughlaqabad Palace, looking out into the city. So this is the, this is the area that uh, Ghiasuddin Tughlaq constructed. You can see the moat that, he's, that he carves out. Much of the stones that went into the creation of these walls was taken from 
from, from the quarries right here. And in some places, the, the saw marks are still visible. We're talking about walls that are 90 meters in height in places. We're talking about stone blocks that weigh about uh, 120 tons. And all of this construction is happening very rapidly. But and I'm sort of emphasizing this point really because of the contradiction between the, the humble warrior who had received no support in the early years of his reign when he had landed up in Tughlaqabad when he landed, I'm sorry, when he landed up in Delhi, and to the arena which he then constructs, wherein he, wherein he can then house his dispensation. Uh, again, you get a sense of the kind of construction. Uh, I give you a rough idea of the nature of the darbar, the court and the ceremonies that were, that, uh, that the chroniclers describe, how Gyasuddin Tughlaq put no stock on ceremony, how he would get off his throne and greet people as equals. You know, and this this humble attitude of uh, tears streaming down his eyes, and so on and so forth. But this is the darbar. This is the darbar in the Tughlaqabad uh, fort, and it's divided up into two parts. There's an antechamber, which is what you're looking at now, and the uh, the the enclosure where the sultan would stay is on the is on the other side. Uh, you get a photograph. Now, this is the area. This is a photograph taken from where the sultan would sit, and you get a sense of the dimensions of this place. So, the way in which Ibn Battuta described palaces of this kind was Hazar Sutun, or the palaces of a thousand pillars. And clearly, the references here, the imagery that they're working with, has actually been worked out very nicely by by Eva Koch. And it's a reference back to Achaemenid Iran and Persepolis. It's also a reference back to the garden, uh, to the paradisical gardens where uh, the, the Amir Hajib or the Chamberlain veiled the monarch from the eyes of uh, all the people who would, who would uh, come to uh, perform sijda or uh, salutations and, prost and prostrate themselves ceremoniously before him. Quite again, the contrast is, in, is the interesting part. In the making the dispensation, the making the construction of authority required this kind of, of a geography as well. And Tughlaqabad actually gives us a sense of this kind of contrast between humble backgrounds and the making of authority. It happens, and this gets to be the interesting part, it happens over and over again. So when, you may well ask, what happened to Gyasuddin Tughlaq? Gyasuddin Tughlaq ruled very briefly. He also died accidentally. Uh, he's marching back to his capital from campaigns in Urissa, and his son holds a review uh, of, of the army for him. And as the elephants go by, this quickly constructed palace collapses on him. So there's a certain irony there that a man who constructs this great city has a similar kind of a or a smaller kind of a construction collapsing on him, and that's, that's his end. When Muhammad Tughlaq succeeds, he does not reside in his father's palace. He does not reside in his father's palace. He has his own citadel, Adilabad. This is where he moves in with his entourage, which he has built up over time. We know that he's been, we know he's been constructing this uh, foundation of power because Ibn Battuta tells us that Gyasuddin Tughlaq, his father, had discovered that Muhammadin Tughlaq had been buying slaves surreptitiously and he said you should not do th that activity. So we know 
uh, he was also a governor for a long period of time. So we know that he'd been marshalling forces to seize power. But in seizing power, he does not, he does not actually want to move into the same geographical arena. So he's in Adilabad, and from Adilabad, he actually constructs this new city, of, uh, which is uh, currently just described as Tughlaqabad. While he's over there and he's, and he's ruling from this area, he's also embarking on a second construction, which is the city of Jahapana. So Mohammed bin Tughlaq is truly perhaps the most, uh, the, the, the greatest constructor of all the Delhi sultans. He's also important for a completely different reason. And now I just want to shift uh, my lecture slightly because so far I've just been talking about cycles of construction activity. Through it all, through this entire construction activity that's been taking place, one of the questions that remains in your that should remain in one's mind is how populated were these cities? After all, Tughlaqabad is constructed in three years. What was the nature of this quote-unquote city? Was it just a military camp and sometimes for example, our sources do use the term Lashkargah or cantonment to describe some of these places. Siri, for, for example, was a Lashkargah during Alauddin Khalji's time and only became actually a capital with his successor. So while, while all this construction activity is taking place, where do the residents of the, the civil population reside? Where are the great bazaars? Where, is, uh, where are the great festivals held, for example? Now, while on one hand, the, each, each Delhi Sultan tried to populate his capital and make it into a robust city, independent city. So for example, you notice that element in Tughlaqabad itself. It, it's, it's ironic in the way in which this early Sultanate city actually looks a lot like Shah Jahanabad in its configuration of spaces of the citadel and the citadel come palace and the city on one side. Uh, but clearly, the place where the old gentry resided, the rais of the city, the, or you know, to use a term that Marshall Hawson uh, made, made famous, the Ayan, where did they reside? Uh, it was clearly the, Delhi, the region which was called Delhi Kona. Okay, so this, when, when people talked about Delhi or just used the abbreviated form Delhi, they meant the old city. Now, that gets me interesting because as Muhammad Tughlaq starts consolidating his power, he has to face what I refer to in my writings as the debris of dispensations. You know, old, old families <coughs> who might have been empowered at one time, who had managed to entrench themselves enough where the passage of dynasties could not actually uh, uh, disempower them. They remained, they, the residue of power and authority remained with them. Many of them branched off into scholasticism. So we have people who started off in, as military elite, but uh, went, in the, went, in the, went in the direction of becoming Ehle Kalam. Perhaps the best example of such an individual is uh, no less a person than Amir Khusro himself, whose father was an Amir, and he went in a completely different direction. So it's Delhi Kona which gets me as it were, the crucible of civilization. Now remember, even in the, the, the history of this goes back to Iltutmish's time. That was the character that he had given to Delhi Kona, the condominium of relationships that he had with, the, uh, with both the Kalam and the Shamsi Bandagan had created that, that, that halo around the city and that survived. Alauddin Khalji had added to that. 
By the time we come to Muhammad Tughlaq, he has to face the consequences of this kind of uh, gradual evolution of an aristocracy in the city. The way in which he deals with it is, is a classic sultanate exercise. He has to evacuate. He has to evacuate Delhi of their presence. And much of that has been actually detailed by, by Peter Jackson when he talks about uh, the rationale for the garrisoning of Delhi Kona with peasant troops and the movement of the residents from that area to Dawlatabad. So in other words, the, the Sultanate moves in the direction of actually seizing another geographical space which was well populated, moving its population out and creating a new colony of residents. And we know that this depopulation, that this depopulation of uh, the region of Delhi Kona has its own consequences because through it we have actually the, the emergence of a variety of other gentry in, uh, in, in the provinces of the Sultanate. It's through this kind of depopulation of Delhi that we have movements of Sufis and the ulama in regions far south as the Bahamanid. But curiously enough, even while, even while the city was depopulated briefly, uh, the idea of hazrat delhi or Delhi as a Qubbatul Islam never died, or the sanctuary of Islam never died. And it's that longevity of that idea which gets to be interesting, because if you follow, follow the history of the Delhi of Sultanate, you follow the history of the city of Delhi through the period of the Sultanate, you notice the peregrinations of the, the, of the capitals and how the sultans moved around. You notice also the coming and going of these, of these dynasties pretty much in a very Ibn Khaldunian way. The rise and fall of these dynasties follows the kind of cycles that he keeps talking about in his, in his great work. But beyond that also, what is, what is, what is always lost is this great presence that a body of people who are actually completely unremarked upon in Sultanate historiography, which is the Rais, whose presence in the city of Delhi actually lent, led it, uh, gave it the greatest importance. By way of conclusion, um, what I want to do is actually talk about Nizamuddin's Khanka, Nizamuddin's Khanka, because even while, and go back to Tughlaqabad in, this, in that context, because even while Tughlaqabad was constructed and we saw signs of its, of its importance and, and, and magnificence. Uh, the memory of Tughlaqabad, which survives in, which survived through the ages, was of the relationship between Ghiasuddin Tughlaq and Nizamuddin. Okay, because the two were, uh, the two were contemporaries, and Nizamuddin and Ghiasuddin Tughlaq in brief, never got along. And they did not get along because Nizamuddin Aulia had, by Ghazdin Tughlaq's reign, carved out a very clear fraternity and importance for himself in the plain of Delhi. He did not have, and this is, this is uh, a citation from Amir Khusro, he did not have, uh, uh, he did not have a kingdom, but he ruled over people's hearts. He did not have a throne, but he had the entire city of Delhi at his feet all the time. And of course, that gets to be interesting because whenever you read uh, his, his text, the Father Fuad, the first ritual that is, that is mentioned uh, that all visitors 
performed when they came to visit Nizamuddin earlier was Sijda and Paibus, which was of course the ceremony which was performed in the great Darbar as, as well. Now Nizamuddin Aulia and Ghazdin Tughlaq never got along, and uh, which actually provoked Ghazdin Tughlaq to uh, give an ultimatum that Nizamuddin had to turn up in Ghazdin, at, at Tughlaqabad. And therein lies this, 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 this famous other epithet that, that, uh, that, has, that has stayed uh, and been, been embedded in the history of Delhi, that Hanuz Dili, Dili Durast, that Delhi is still far away because Ghazdin Tughlaq would who had placed this ultimatum that Nizamuddin Aulia needs to come back, needs to be present at the great Darbar that we had seen, actually never turned up because Ghazdin Tughlaq had a city collapse on his head. In other words, we go back to, this big, to the big picture of the, of the Sultanate period and its remarkable difference, say, with Mughal authority. But beyond noticing the difference between the Sultanate and the Mughal period, uh, there's also the, the need to focus upon how important it is to go back and talk about the history of a body of people that, are, that always get to be elided when we talk about the history of Sultanate Delhi, which get to be the history of the race. And that gets to be an extremely difficult exercise to do because of the different ways in which their histories have been hegemonized. In one way, Sultanate Chronicles Chroniclers never focus upon them. They never focus upon them with their, with their main direction being the Delhi Sultans themselves. But if you take a look at the Sufi texts themselves, if you take a look at the Malfuzat, uh, the table talk of these Sufis, or if you take a look at the Tazkarat, the earliest Tazkarat, which dates from uh, just around the time period of Muhammad Tughlaq's death, 1350, uh, the Siar al if you take a look at any of these texts, uh, what you have rather than the sultan you have the sultan of the sheikhs as a major protagonist okay so we rather than having in other words a history a social history of the the rais of delhi you have histories brief histories uh, even if we have of the great sheikhs they get to be the counterpoint to the sultan so uh, you know, and classically, of course, in Sultan studies, it's, it's pointed out as a relationship between the Sufis and the Sultans. And when they talk about the Sufis, they mean the great sheikhs. But if you take a look at the, the Siyar al-Aulia and you do a careful prosopographical study of the data that's there, you realize how that Tazkirat, this history of the Chishtis, also hegemonizes the rest of the Rais in the making of the authority of the Sufi sheikh. In other words, the only reference point about individuals who were important in the city of Delhi through the 13th, uh, through the 13th and the 14th centuries gets to be their relationship with one or the other of the great Chishti sheikhs. Their independent lives, their households, their lineages are completely obliterated. And when you make it, when you go back and you reconstruct these histories, one of the things that you discover is that the people that were important were always those that actually managed to recreate their lives while retaining their relationships with the Sufi sheikhs. In other words, their autonomy, their autonomy, their independent life was extremely important before they came to be, uh, while they were indeed also associated with the charisma of the great Sufi sheikhs. And so in a sense, you know, to finally wind up my lecture, uh, it's the the history of the city itself. And if you do, if you do uh, again, 
walk it through the various cities. One of the interesting pictures that emerges from it is how you can both reconstitute political authority and the makings of political authority in the, in, from the perspective of the Delhi Sultans. But you can also uh, recapture the kind of politics that was involved in the making of rhetorical statements about authority and kingship, ways by which both uh, civil authority or social power was obliterated in the, creation, in the, in the crafting of a sultanate um, hegemonic structure. Thank you.